If you turn to the Gospel of John, we're going to read uh, just three verses and then consider what, what Jesus says to his church as we close out um, 2015. And, and we'll probably spend a, a week or two considering uh, the mission of the church before we return to the Gospel of Matthew. But I think it's, it's good to uh, follow Christmas with a... Um, a focus on first principles and, and to focus not just on the, uh, the reason for the season or the feeling of the season, but to take it the additional step further and what are the implications of it for us. And so we're going to read John chapter 10, uh, just three verses, and then we'll pray and consider God's word. John writes this in John chapter 10, verse 14. This is Jesus speaking. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we are thankful that you speak to us in your word. And so we ask that as we consider your word and as we gather today, to, to we've, we have sung, we have given, and now we turn to the explanation of your word. Not that your word is, is difficult to determine the meaning of. Many times it's the fact that it is so plain and clear that is the problem. We need to be exhorted and reminded. We need to take up the text and preach to ourselves even as we are taught. And so we pray that that we would apply ourselves to the word and that that we would not allow uh, the imagery of the word to rob us of the meaning of it, but but that we would we would see the the reason for this analogy and we would see the mission that you have called us to and that that we would commit to it afresh. Lord, we are still in the middle of a time when people are incredibly ready and willing to discuss deep matters of faith. It is is the Christmas season and there is a kind of, of magic in this time where people are considering their lives considering what's to come in 2016, and is it possible, I believe it is, that you would use us, some of us, who are willing and ready and brave enough to share the gospel, you will change lives as your word is proclaimed and explained. And so we pray for your grace as we finish out 2015, and as we begin 2016, and we pray that you would speak to us now in this scripture, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Um, sometimes images can just become, you know, uh, it can be, it can be, you can become blind to an image. Um, I'm thinking specifically of, of, of what has been called by some environmental amnesia. I'm not particularly good at uh, following through on things written on post-it notes, particularly if I take that post-it note and I post it somewhere where I, where I will always see it. I used to stick post-it notes on the, um, 
on right next under the keyboard on my computer, right? You got the trackpad right there, and then right here, surely I will see that. And yet, a couple of weeks after writing a note, I'll peel it off and I'll be like, why didn't I ever do this? I put it right in front of me. I, I wrote on this piece of paper and I stuck it on my computer monitor or on the rear view mirror of my car and promptly forgot because you can grow accustomed to seeing it and forget. Um, there are images in the scripture that, that, that if we don't consider them and work through that, that feeling of, of being well acquainted with it, that we can, we can lose the image. One um, that, that has kind of struck me throughout my life is uh, the idea that the Holy Spirit is our comforter, right? Um, we didn't have blankets in our house growing up when you sat at, in front of the TV down in the basement or in the living room. If you sat there, you, you went and got a comforter. And so hearing that the Holy Spirit is our comforter, the first thing that always jump, pops up in my mind is like the idea that he's like the blue blankie. And it's like, no, you know, he, he comforts us in affliction. He gives us help and aid. And if, if you just think, oh, you know, the Holy Spirit, then you miss the point. You miss the, the image. I grew up with Jesus in stained glass at the, uh, the front of the church. You'd, you'd, you'd face and see Jesus in stained glass. Um, he was also at the base of the stairs heading downstairs in First Baptist Church. You'd, you'd go down this set of stairs through a set of double doors, uh, make a left, and that's where the men's room and the water fountain were. And there was Jesus, uh, the shepherd, hanging on the wall. And that image, um, Jesus as the shepherd, has a, a kind of comfiness to it. We, we love Psalm 23, the idea that, uh, that, that God is a good shepherd and he leads us beside still waters. He restores our soul. Our cup overflows. But here in this passage where Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, we can, we can think, that's so good, shepherd. Loving, kind, right? Jesus, Jesus takes me and comforts me. He puts me over his shoulder and he, he carries me where I need to go. He, he sought me as, as the lost sheep. You know, he had 99 in, in the field and he went and he found me and he brought me back. And I was too weak or too small to walk and he brought me back. But I would say this, that if that's what we hear when we hear, I am the good shepherd, then, then we miss the edge of the text. We miss the implications of the text for our lives. I would say this. Jesus' declaration that he is the good shepherd has a major demand for his church. When he says, I am the good shepherd, he is saying, and that means you are called to respond to who I am in a particular way. And it's not just let me comfort and encourage you and carry you, although those are all good images associated with shepherds in the Bible, particularly in Psalm 23 and in Luke 15. But here in John 10, it means something specific. In John 10, Jesus is, is sharing his last public discourse. We're coming to an end in the Gospel of, of John here. He's going to move into the upper room and he's going to teach his church specifically about what's going to happen and what's going what's to come in their lives when he's gone. And then he is going to go to the cross. That's the remainder of the, the outline of the, the book of, of John. So in John chapter 10, verses 
1 through 21, Jesus is disclosing his identity to the people who are listening to him. This is not just his disciples. This is not just believers. This is a mixed crowd. He's, he's saying, this is who I am. This is what I've come for. And they are refusing to hear it. And then after he declares his identity in a twist of irony, this seems to be the way the whole book of John is written, in verses 22 to 42, they then turn and demand that Jesus reveal his identity to them. Tell us who you are. And he's like, I just told you who I am. They refuse to hear it, and they reject what he says about himself. Let's, let's break this text down and, and see what, what Jesus says. He says in verse 14, we see his revealed identity. Jesus revealed identity. He says, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. He's making a claim for himself here. He's giving himself a title and taking a role on himself. Psalm 100 verse 3 says, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Some would say uh, that the Bible, in the Bible, Jesus never claims to be God. I would say this. If you read the Gospel of John and you, you look for all the subtle connections and all the things that he says and you look at the way that the audience reacts when he speaks, I would say Jesus claims that he is God all over the place in the Gospel of John. He says, I am the good shepherd. Right? And then we read Psalm 100, verse 3. Know that the Lord, he is God. The Lord is God. It is he who made us. We are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And he says, I am the shepherd. That's clearly a claim to be someone more than a man, more than just a good teacher. To be God himself, laying down new revelation, calling his church into existence and commanding them to respond to him in a particular way. What does Isaiah 40 verse 11 say? He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. He is the good shepherd. That's Jesus' identity. He cares for those whom he's gathering out of the world. Second, we see in verses 14 and 15 that he shepherds personally. Look at what the, the scriptures say here in verse 14. I am the good shepherd. Got that? He says, I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father. Jesus knows personally. He knows his own. Um, just as the, the shepherd in Luke chapter 15 looks out at his flock and knows after counting them that one is missing and probably knowing his flock well enough, he knows which specific sheep is missing. Um, they, the, the, in, in, the, uh, in agricultural life, uh, farmers have brands, and I'm not just talking about the glowing red hot thing, you know, but there's, a, there's an identifying mark. A lot of times now, uh, farmers use uh, paint, right? You know, because, because you, you just, you don't burn marks onto things anymore. We don't, we don't do that, I guess. Um, but, but they use a kind of paint, and so when you, when you are picking through and looking at these animals, you're like, that has my mark on it. This is mine. This is the one that I own. 
And one of them is gone. And so the shepherd goes out and, and looks for that which is missing because, because the shepherd has his flock and he keeps that flock together. He protects it and defends it. Nowadays, we might call one missing out of 99 acceptable loss, right? That's a, if you've, um, if you've ever worked in retail, you know, stuff goes missing, can't do anything about it. That's not the way shepherds think. Shepherds think... One missing is one too many missing. Got to go find that sheep and bring it back to the family. Look at the way that the shepherd shepherds. Matthew 10.30 says that he knows the hairs on your heads. I know that my mom and dad love me. I know that my wife loves her children. But she does not count their hair. Like, there's a, there's, a, there's a breaking point in terms of the depth of detail that, that they're willing to go into. You know what I mean? It's like, not, not really going to manage that, you know? But, but this shepherd knows. He knows everything. He knows everything about us. He knows what we need. He knows what we want. He knows what we crave. He knows how we go astray. He knows how we need to be rebuked. He knows what what friends and influences we need in our lives. He knows how we need to be convicted and how we need to be encouraged. And he knows what needs to be shaped and, and, and broken off of us and what needs to be added and worked into us. He knows his flock. He knows us down to to the level of of knowing the hairs on our heads. Romans 8.28 says that he arranges the affairs of those who are called by him for good. That That the good things that happen to us are there for our good. God causes all things to work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. He arranges the difficult circumstances of our life that they may result in spiritual good. Jesus loves and values each member of his flock in a way that a limited and finite shepherd could not do, but an infinitely, infinite, sorry, loving shepherd can. He loves his flock and he loves them all. All And there are no, as Francis Schaeffer would say, little people in the flock of God. God has so composed the body, the Bible says, that he's, he's given different gifts to each member of the body. And they've all got something to offer. And when each person is not engaged and using the spiritual gifts that they've been given in the body, the body itself suffers. You may be here today thinking, like, you know, I don't have an important gift. I can't... I can't uh, bang bongos and, and, and play the cymbal or I don't have a, a singing voice or I can't preach, you know, there are gifts that you have. There are gifts that you have. God designed you as you. He gave you your personality. He allowed your, your, your heart and mind to be shaped in such a way. He called you when he did. You have the career that you have. Not that you have to stay in it for the rest of your life, but you have this, this, this pile of experiences and you have these spiritual gifts and God shaped you to be uniquely you so that you could be part of the, the flock. You have something to offer. And he brought you into this family as a good shepherd. So he's ready and willing to use you. I'm getting ahead of myself. Notice in the next section here, his saving mercy. 
verse 15, he says, I lay down my life for the sheep. I lay down my life for the sheep. I put down my life for the sheep. I, I, I put it out there. Um, when, when you go to get a loan, you have to put up collateral, right? You have to put something against it. You have, to, you have to say, I will leave this with you, or if I fail to, to measure, follow through on my obligations, this will be what you can, you can take from me. Um, Jesus releases his life on behalf of his own. In the, in the book of Acts, when Paul is describing the, the task of the elders of the church to the, the elders of Miletus, he says, shepherd the flock of God, which he purchased with his own blood, the precious blood of Christ. When you pay the most infinitely imp- uh, valuable thing for something, what does it, what does it say? about that thing. The church is purchased with the blood of Christ, and that means that it is incredibly valuable. Not because it appears valuable. The people don't appear valuable because of their their sinfulness or their fallenness or their their difficulty in, in following and believing and following through, but God's value upon the church is that he will lay down his life. Jesus lays down his life, spills out his own blood to save the church because of his love. I lay down my life for the sheep, in the place of the sheep. Why do the sheep need to be saved? The Bible says because of, of sin. Verse uh, 6 of Isaiah 53 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, not on them, not on the sheep, the iniquity of us all. It's not that that God can just wave his hand and cancel out sin because the universe doesn't work that way. God being infinitely holy and infinitely loving means that God cannot stand sin. He cannot abide it. Right? Just like somebody who desires their house to be clean cannot abide dirt. Have you guys seen that commercial that's on TV with the, the dog walks into the house and the, the dirty footprints, right? And then the, I guess he, he goes and I don't know, gets a loan or whatever and replaces his carpet. And then his kid walks across, you know. And, and there's something in you if, you. if you love for your house to be clean, you're like, make it stop every single time it happens. Like, you just, you've seen the commercial 15 times. I'm like, shut it off. You know, this should not happen over and over and over again. That's the way God feels about sin. When people refuse to live up to his commandments or they refuse to follow through on the principles and and values that he's laid out in scripture, God says, that cannot be. He can't just say, I let it go. Humans do that. Humans can do that, right? I can forgive someone who sinned against me. Why? Because I've sinned against other people. I understand, you know, I understand I'm not perfect. All right, I've done that. You did it, you did this to me. Well, let's just, let's let it go. That's not the way it is with God. God is the only person in the entire universe who can say, if everyone would behave differently, my life would be infinitely better. If everyone else would change, like some of us feel that way. You know, if, my, if, if this would change, if that would change, you know, my, my life would be better. No, God is the only one who can truly say that. If everybody would just be different, the universe would be a much better place to live in. 
It's not an issue of forgiveness. It is that sin needs to be canceled out. God is holy, and that means he can't just ignore it. He has to punish it. And so he sends his son to take our place. We've gone astray like sheep. We've turned each one to his own way. But the Lord takes the perfect one, the son, the shepherd, and places all the sin of all the sheep on him and puts him to death, and sin then is canceled out. I lay down my life, he says, for the sheep. Not just to protect the sheep, but to give the sheep life. He pays the price for our sins to free us from guilt so that we can be part of his flock, of his family. And so what remains then for the sheep, right? This is a good point to say that that we've got to then believe that this is true of us, that we need forgiveness of our sins, that we need our sins to be canceled out and paid for, and that we need Christ's righteousness to be credited to us. It's, It's good. We need to say, yes, I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior, and I'm thankful that God gave him to me, and so I believe in him. I say, I deserve that punishment. I'm thankful that God will give me righteousness. I believe in the Savior. That's a good thing to do, to lay hold of it. But that's, that's not all. That's not all that is, is, is applied to the church here, okay? It is, there's, there's a connection to, to the whole saying that Jesus is, is laying out here. There's a connectedness of the pieces, right? Now, I'm not talking about any specific kid. Maybe this is a New Year's resolution, not name the specific child who did the specific thing. This is all of my kids. Have you ever noticed this? Um, I can't quite figure out whose clothes are whose in our house. Nancy knows this shirt belongs to this kid. She knows. She can see it all in her brain. I'm just like, I, I, I know that like the Packers stuff belongs to Max. I know that. Um, and they're going to win today. They're going to win. We'll probably pray for them when we close. Um, so, so the, um, so, so I know, I know some things, but like, but, but so I will pile up clothing, like all the shirts, Right. And then I'll say to the kids, go and get your clothes. And the kids don't understand the principle of interconnectedness. Or they do, and they just don't care. This is what they do. They grab the shirt that's in the middle, and, and, and you, you, you may have seen a magician do this, right? You know, pull the, pull the tablecloth off, and everything stays there. You've got to do it fast, right? Don't do this with Christmas dinner, anybody, um, you know, or, or New Year's dinner. You know, you've you got to pull fast, and everything supposedly will stay there. But they'll just grab the piece of clothing in the middle and pull it, and everything else falls apart. Right? It's the same way with Tupperware or, or food storage containers. Right? I'll, just, I'll just grab this container, and then I'll shove everything else in there. And then every time you open it up, all the containers fall out. Right? Um, they're all connected. They need to be put back in the, you know, you can't just pull the bottom one out. Everything else will follow. We, we as a church, many times, we, we stop and we say, Oh, it is so good to have a Savior. It's so good that Jesus loves me, that he cares for me, that that he laid down his life for me. And we say, I accept it, I receive it, I believe it. But it's connected to other ideas. It's connected to other things. If If you lay hold of that, if you claim it and you say, mine, and you pull it, other things come with it. And here, here, here are those implications. If he lays down his life, 
if he is the good shepherd, if he knows his own and his own know me, if he lays down his life for the sheep and we lay hold of it, then we lay hold of verse 16 as well. So look at what Jesus says about his flock. He speaks about his flock's ethnic diversity. He says this, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Now the fold is the place where you put the sheep when the shepherd goes and he goes to sleep, right? Build a nice little rock wall. You have an opening. Maybe make that, you get a big boulder to kind of shove there. You know, there's no sheep-sized holes in it, you know, so that they escape. And now you're missing one and you got to go live Luke chapter 15 and go get that sheep. You know, you, you have a fold. And the fold that Jesus is speaking of here, he says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Right? He's, he's speaking. There are people who believe in him. They're his sheep. But the fold here is ethnic Israel, the Jews. Amos chapter 3, verse 2 says, You only I have known of all the families of the earth. Speaking of, of the Jewish people. Paul on Mars Hill speaks about, this is in Acts chapter 17, speaks about how God made the nations and what he's doing. Acts 17, 26, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Imagine an entire race of of blind men and women walking around, feeling in the dark, looking for God, looking for life because they are blind and in the darkness. Acts 17.30, Paul says this, The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That man went to the cross. And he made a whole bunch of claims about what was going to happen. And then God raised him up from the dead. And now that man, everything that he said is true. Uh, everything that Jesus told his church is true. And he will judge the world on a particular day. And everyone's called to repent. The flock here is the, the, the particular fold, rather, is ethnic Israel. But, but there are other sheep which are not of that fold. Think about it. On the day of Pentecost, on the birthday of the church, there were 120 people gathered in a room. That was all the followers that Jesus had. Peter went out and preached a sermon, and 3,000 people repented, and the church began to grow as other people were drawn into the fold. But there are other sheep which are not of that fold. And so we see the mission of the church in verse 16. Jesus says, I must bring them also. Notice the, the imperative word here. He has a charge from his father. You must bring them. And he is motivated by his love for his flock because he's not going to leave them out in the field. He's going to gather them in. He's going to gather them, whatever fold they're from, he's going to gather them so that they'll be one flock. Um, when you pack for Christmas, for a, for a trip, for summer, or you, you pack to go to the beach when you've got a, a little one, it's like moving an army. Have you ever, maybe you've experienced this or seen this. Like, what, what, do I, what do I need to bring? You know, and I'm like cramming all this stuff into the car, and I'm like, Nance, do we need this? Yes chairs, okay. Do we need this? Yes. Umbrella. Do we need this? Yes. Blanket. Do we need this? Food, toys, sunscreen, hat, 
You know, like, it's moving an army. What, 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 what of all this can I leave behind? Nothing, right? We need every last bit of it. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. Jesus' mission is that no sheep will be left behind. Matthew 24, 14 says this, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end shall come. The whole of the flock must be gathered in. And this is what I think we can call the crisis of salvation for the church, right? Jesus is, he wants to gather in his whole church. That's the the mission that he left to the church. But the church can't just sit and wait for everyone to come in. They must go and share the gospel because there is a, a limiting factor involved here. It's not just that, that God is, is calling everyone in the flock to himself. They must believe and receive the gospel message. And there's a crisis there. Acts 4.12 says, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which they must be saved. And so the 7 billion people of the world, 9 out of 10 of them are lost. 3 out of 4 of them have never heard of Jesus. Half of them cannot hear because no one is going to them. And so how does the problem get solved? Jesus tells the church, tells the flock, they must gather them in. How how is that? I must bring them also, he says. But what God does, he does through men and women. Jesus says, I need to gather my flock. But he's got 120 in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. And then Peter opens his mouth, the Bible says, and preaches a sermon. And 3,000 people come to Christ. And the church begins to grow. And then some, some Christians in Antioch share the gospel with some others. And the church grows and becomes a Gentile church there. And then Paul goes. And this is Jesus working through people to call people to himself. And so when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and we say, yes. I lay down my life for the sheep. And we think, that is so good. I am I am." I'm sinful and I was lost, but I've been found and saved and washed and redeemed and and I am a, a, a sheep in that flock and it is so good to belong. Then Jesus says, I must bring the other sheep also. And we must hear him saying, this is your mission. And so we, this morning we are smaller than we normally are. We are normally somewhere between 130 and 160 people. We must make a plan. Think about it. Harvest Baptist Church is more than Peter started with. And we have the Spirit too. The mission of Christ expands out like a tsunami from the cross throughout the days of history. We, we are called here in this place, in harvest, to be so satisfied and delighted with our Savior and with the gospel that, that, that it rolls outward from us, that this is the epicenter, this is the, the outbreak point. Jesus' death is ground zero, and the, and the shock, the impact of that should reverberate out into our community, into our culture, into our state, throughout the United States and throughout the world. 
We are called, aren't we not, when we believe the gospel to be part of his flock? If we're called to be part of his flock, then we're called to use and to deploy our gifts in the expansion of that flock. Why does God pour grace into us? He pours blessing and grace into us that we might be a blessing to others. We have been blessed. Should it not be natural for us to bless others and not just to bless them with material goods, but to share the gospel? Now, I want to move on and point something out, having laid out the mission, having laid out the defining parameter for the church. We see in verse 16, then, Jesus assured victory. There is an assured victory. And, and knowing that he, is, he has victory guaranteed in the future should not make us think, well, then I guess we don't need to do anything. It should make us think something else. Look at what he says in verse 16. And they will listen to my voice. They will listen to my voice. If you think, as you look out at the world, the world is an increasingly scary place and bad things can happen to Christians who go out there with the gospel, you know? And, and the world's attitude towards Christianity seems to be growing um, more and more, you know, uh, there's more animosity and it seems like the, that hearts are growing hard and, and, and can the gospel succeed in this world? We might, we might say, well, Jesus certainly seems to hope so. Is that what you read there? I don't see that. I don't see hope. I see prescient knowledge. I see that Jesus is seeing the end at the very beginning and saying, they will listen to my voice. This is going to happen. He sees what John saw in Revelation 7, 9. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. The Lamb who, interestingly, is also a shepherd. Clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is the fulfillment of Matthew 24, that, that the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout all the world. That, that the fulfillment of verse 16, that they will listen to my voice. The fulfillment of, of verse uh, 15, or 16, where it says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will come. They are there. This knowledge sustained several missionaries of old on the field, like John G. Patton, who ministered in the New Hebrides. He was a missionary there for years. He buried, I believe, two wives, two children, and went years without a single convert. Why did he stay? Because he was absolutely and utterly convinced that when Jesus' own heard the shepherd's voice, they would ultimately follow him at some point. Apparently now, in that place, within the, the New Hebrides island chain, don't ask me where that is, I'm not really sure. I just know it's somewhere out there where civilization and cable probably are not. The 190,000 people of those islands, 85% of them profess Christ as Lord and Savior. Because this guy was just out there working, 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 working with no gospel fruit for years. 
If we know that his sheep are out there and we know that he has called them, then we can go forward and proclaim the gospel with confidence, knowing that I'm not just in my workplace sharing the gospel, wondering if anyone's ever going to come to Christ. No, God has people out there. If you go into the Islamic world and you minister in the 1040 window and no one comes to Christ for years and years and years, you can minister with confidence because you know that at some point, someone whom God is calling will come and they will respond. He has foreseen it. He knows. He is making it happen. And so we minister and share with confidence. We know that his sheep are out there, and so we go out there pursuing them wherever we find ourselves in life. It is not okay for the believer to say, I just give to the mission's effort, and say, I don't live the mission's effort. Now, if you are a missionary, in quotes, in your workplace, you're not a missionary in the standard sense. But that isn't something we ought to like, get all hurt about. You're not a real missionary. No, no you have a mission. It's just your mission is not the same as the other missionaries' mission. Their mission is to take the gospel where it isn't. Your mission is to take the gospel and to apply it and proclaim it where it is. The gospel's all around in this culture. You go to any hotel, any hospital room, you can, you can be like, is there a Bible in here? You know, yes, there is. They're everywhere. You go to certain places in the world and you say, is there a Bible here? And they say, what's a Bible? They have no clue. Missionaries take, take God's word there. But, but we serve the function of evangelists. We apply the scripture and say, believe, receive, this knowledge and message is good. But we are all working for the same purpose, and that's Jesus' purpose in verse 16, which is our present and ultimate unity. He says, so there will be one flock. There'll be one flock. There are many Folds. There are a number of, of distinct places where Christians gather. But even though we are scattered in different folds, we are one flock. John eleven fifty one and 52 says that he prophesied Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Romans 12, 5 says, So in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. And so we ought to feel a potential deep unity and a love for people who are lost. Instead of having this bunker mentality of the world being split into those who are our allies, who are Christians, and our enemies, no, instead we ought to say there are those who are not yet his sheep, but who very much are called to be his sheep, and they will eventually be our brothers and sisters, and they live in Muslim countries. They are orphaned in South America. They are oppressed in Asia, enslaved in India, in slavery to sin in Uzbekistan, burdened by debt and by poor economic systems in Africa. These are his sheep, and they are our brothers and sisters, and they need the gospel. And so we're called to stand united with them because they need to be saved. Don't get all tricky with election here and be like, if they never hear, can they be lost? I think that comes from the devil. And it makes us passive. 
Well, someone will share with them. What if no one ever does? You want to get up in heaven and be like, I thought a lot about election and I figured you'd reach them somehow. You know? When I say to my kids, make sure that when your mom comes home, there's no dishes in the sink because she couldn't, shouldn't come in from working and, 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 and laboring and doing all the things that she's doing and find more work for herself. And then I come home and there's all these dishes and I say, why didn't somebody do the dishes? And they say, I thought so-and-so was going to do it. No, this is not pleasing to the father when we do that. We should stand with them for their salvation, for their call to Christ, and their call, their, their completing of the flock. We're called to work with others in grace and truth. We ought to have grace in the non-essentials and truth in the essentials, but we ought to find those who we can partner with and work together, love each other for his glory and our joy. I am excited when I look at our, our group of missionaries that we partner with. I mean, these are, these are not just um, numbers. I mean, they are people who we know and love, people who we are related to, and people who we've cultivated deep relationships who are doing good gospel work in places that we can talk about and people, places that we can't talk about because of the risk of the work that they're doing. But we are a family working together. Finally, Jesus indicates that we have one sole authority. They will have one flock, he says. And verse 16, he concludes by saying there will be one shepherd. There is one shepherd. We have a leader who firmly and tenderly guides us and cares for us. One day we will stand in his presence and we will be able to say what we cannot say in the truest sense in this life, that our cup runs over, that, that he has prepared a banqueting table for us and that he leads us beside still waters. In this life we'll have trouble, but we take heart because in him we have all that we need and he has overcome the world. And so we know that one day all our needs will be met. And we will be satisfied forever. Ezekiel 34, 23 says, I will set up over them one shepherd. This is hundreds of years after David dies. God says, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. Revelation 2, 27 says that, that God, that the son will rule them with a rod of iron. Revelation 12, 5 says she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Revelation 19, 15 says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them again rod of iron. We may be defending in our country the best form of human government that can exist among sinners, a representative democracy, and we should defend that, I believe that, but the best form of government is ultimately not a democracy, it's an absolute and total dictatorship ruled by Jesus. Democracy is what you do when you have just sinners around you, but when the perfect one returns, we rightly celebrate and crown him as king. So think about it. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, and some of those who are being forced to do it will be sent away. Who among us, who is thankful for our salvation and who love the Lord, wants to sit back and say, I would obey, but I'm too busy. I would fulfill this commission, but I don't know how. I would, I would lead and I would use my gifts, but 
I'm just not really sure. No, knowing that one day we will answer to our king and we will want him to smile and to delight in us and say, well done, good and faithful servant. We say, how can I be used? And we press on towards the mission. Jesus' words to us in this text demand that we acknowledge the reality of his shepherding care for his own. As his sheep we must acknowledge additionally that there are more of the flock yet to be gathered in. In other folds, whether it's the the people, the Dolpa people of Nepal, 4,100 people living on the sides of mountains, or whether it is people of the eastern shore who need to be gathered in to this fold, we acknowledge that we're required to bring them in through his word, by his power, for his glory, to be his church because they are his not yet sheep. They are our not yet brothers and sisters, but they will be. And we will all be unified under his lordship. And so what should we think about the image of the good shepherd? It's that we are called to call his sheep to him. So I just want to take a moment. I want to read John 10, 14 through 16 again. And I want to encourage you to think, what should be different in 2016? What should be different about this fold? What should be different about this sheep? When I say this sheep, I don't mean me. I mean you, by which I will also consider me, right? Does that make sense? I mean, me. How, what, what ought I to do different to fulfill this commission? And then think, why would I delay in being obedient? Jesus says in John ten fourteen, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own knows me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. And so there will be one flock and one shepherd. As we close, let me encourage you, if you've never done this, to acknowledge and receive him as Savior and Lord. He loves you. The Bible says he laid down his life to save you. And what we're called to do is to turn from our sins, to admit our guilt before him and ask him to save us. And if we do that, he will. The Bible says that whoever comes to him, he will in no way cast out. Those who call upon the Lord will never be disappointed. Perhaps the Lord is calling you into Christian service. Perhaps you've just been kind of sitting back and and thinking, what role do I have to play? But you know that you're called to do something. Let me encourage you to be obedient to the Holy Spirit if he is speaking to you. And to follow through on that commitment in the new year. How do I minister according to the mission that Christ has called me to? Let's close in prayer and then we'll sing a closing song together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here. 2015 is more over than it was when we began this message.
We woke up this morning, we came into this place to worship you, and we have heard from your word. And so we pray, Father, that you would help each and every one of us to examine our hearts and to say, first, am I in Christ? Am I safe in the fold of the Savior? Is he my shepherd? And if we are straying from him and embracing sin and refusing to put our faith and trust in Christ, then we need to repent of that. And so, Father, I pray if there's anyone here who needs to do that, that they would. And second, I pray if there are any who feel that, that they have been sitting back, that they have not been uh, giving their energy to the mission that you've given them, I pray that they would, not out of guilt, and not out of uh, some kind of, 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 of fear of punishment, but out of the joy that's to be theirs when you appear. I pray that they would ask the question, what am I called to do? How has God made me? What is my, my personality like? What, what, what has he put in me? What kind of experiences do I have? And how will he use me in the world? How has he gifted me? And then I pray that each one would have the motivation to follow through on that. Father, may we at the end of 2016 say that our progress can be seen by all, as Paul said to Timothy. May we be in a place where we have progressed along the road and we've grown in holiness and dedication and we have grown in the number of those whom we're gathering in and we've grown in unity as a flock. And may we be able to say that we are united and obedient to our one shepherd. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's stand and sing this closing song together.